Welcome to the Living Ageless and Bold podcast. I'm your host, Christina Daves, and in each episode, I bring you amazing women who inspire, educate, and share their experiences and journeys along the way. So grab a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, find a cozy spot, and let's relax and have some fun hearing what can be accomplished after 55. Hi, everybody. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about today's guest. I think I saw her on Instagram and reached out and she said yes, and she's amazing. She wrote this incredible book that just everything of what this podcast is. So I can't wait to dive in. I don't usually read bios, but hers is so impressive. I want you guys to know who we have with us today. Joanne Lippman is the best-selling author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. And that's what she said. She has served as, get ready for this, editor-in-chief of US Today Network, Condé Nast Portfolio, and the Wall Street Journal's Weekend Journal leading these organizations to six Pulitzer Prizes. She's also an on-air CNBC contributor and Yale University journalism lecturer. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, I want you to hold up your book for those people watching on YouTube so you can see this cover. I just finished the book. You guys, it is so good. Um, And again, for our listeners, it's all about this next chapter and there's so many great stories in it and so much science in it. And it so validated me in this podcast, I can't tell you. So let's just dive right into it. One of the things that is in the book, it talks about this third act that we're in. And what I loved about it, and I have found from my guests, and I want you to tell us why this, is that it's so much more meaningful. We're doing things at this stage in our lives with purpose. Like we wanna change the world. And you did all the research. So tell us why that is. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, for those who haven't read Next, and I hope everyone has an opportunity to do so, the book is a deeply reported guide to navigating change in how we live, how we work, how we lead. And it's backed by hundreds of interviews that I did with people who had experienced every kind of change, people from their 20s to their 90s, showing how reinvention really can be a continual process, as well as I then interviewed experts in the process of change. So everybody from neuroscientists to psychologists to management gurus. And then I synthesized it all. And I talk about all different kinds of changes throughout Next. And I synthesize it all at the end with a dozen steps. I've got a toolkit there, dozen steps that you can take that are going to help you in your own reinvention journey. And yeah, it, it, like I said, it was so good. And the stories were fascinating. But the reinvention journey, you really summed it up into four steps. Yes. Yes. So So let's talk about how that works. And and I was fascinated by the stop piece of it. Oh, yeah. You really have to have that to move on. So the reinvention, I call this the reinvention roadmap. When I spoke to all of these people, what I found is that people even regardless of the journey, whether it was a 25-year-old who was switching careers or a 80-year-old who was making a new discovery, they talked about kind of the same set of steps that they went through, the same phases they went through. And then when I talked to these experts, they used different terminology, but they were all essentially talking about the same steps. And the reinvention roadmap, four steps, search, struggle, stop, solution. 
Now I'll walk you through briefly those four steps. So the first step, the search. Now this is, it's often unintentional. You are collecting experience, you're collecting information, and it's ultimately going to lead you to a transition. But the really fascinating thing that I found is that for so many people, it actually was not at all intentional, that they didn't know that all of this information, these experiences were going to lead ultimately to a transition. And in fact, very often they didn't know where they were going to end up, which was fascinating and also very counterintuitive because, you know, all of the research and the, all of the business books that are out there say you have to have a concrete goal and then work backwards and have every step of the way planned out to get there. So many people who I interviewed, that was not the case. This first step, the search, unintentional. Then comes the second step. Okay. The second step, this is the one we don't like to talk about. It's the struggle. The struggle is when you start to disconnect from your previous identity, but you haven't quite figured out what the new one is and where you're going. And you are in this very uncomfortable phase. And we tend to gloss right over it when we talk about great reinvention stories. And the fact is, while you're in it, it really is very lonely. It feels like you're stuck. It feels like Everybody else is on a glide path to success and only you are struggling. But what I found is, first of all, everybody goes through it. You are so not alone. If you are going through this right now, know that you have plenty of company. Also, my research has found that even though it feels like you're standing still, you're actually moving forward. There's a lot of important work being done in this phase. It's just under the surface. So while it feels uncomfortable and it feels like you're not getting anywhere, in fact, you actually are moving forward. This stage though often doesn't end until you reach the third step, which is the stop. And the stop is fascinating. The stop is something that basically stops you in your tracks. And it could be something you choose. It could be, I get married, I have a baby, I get a new job. But it could also be something that is imposed on you, like I lost my job, or there's a global pandemic and I got sent home, or I got sick. There, you know, It could be a good or a bad thing, but whatever it is, it pulls you out of your routine. And only then do you get the perspective you need to understand everything and put into perspective all of these experiences, these previous steps, and gives you clarity. And that is what finally leads you to that fourth step, which is the solution, which is where you are pivoting to. You talk a lot about the pandemic in the book uh, and a lot of how basically the whole world was forced to stop. We didn't all want, I mean, we had no choice, like collectively, but what that did for us and gave us these opportunities to, hey, maybe now I am going to pivot, or maybe my family is the most important thing to me, not working 24-7, 365. So that was, you know, how do we look at that kind of globally since it was everybody in the world? It wasn't just one little section. It was all of us. That's exactly right. And in fact, the impetus for the book, I wrote it, I got the idea for it in April of 2020, 
when we were all sent home and we realized that the world was going to change this pandemic. We didn't know at that moment how it would end, when it would end, what would the world look like when it ended. And so, so I woke up literally in the middle of the night. I'm like, there is no guidebook to tell us how do we find our way to this new normal. And I'm like, I have to write this. This is, we all need this, including me. And so that was the impetus for the book, though I will say that, so one of the things the pandemic did on a global level was it was like a giant stop for all of us. It it actually, what it did is it, it made all of us step back and rethink our priorities. We rethought our relationship to our jobs. What is a good job? How did we want to spend our time? And it was a great reset is what it was, which is why it led to so many of the things that we've seen, you know, with the great resignation and quiet quitting and quiet cutting, all of these things like stemmed from that. But what I found recently since the book came out in the last couple of months is this, it really is equally applicable to any kind of change in your life. And we are at a historic moment of change. This is really a pivotal moment. When you think about everything we've gone through, we've just came out of the pandemic, we've got a situation where you've got economic uncertainty, you've got the quiet cutting and you've got the quiet quitting, all of those things. You have a, a, a situation where People coming into the workforce today are looking at an entirely different workforce and work life. These people, young people coming up today are probably looking at a 60-year career path, not the 40 years most of us had anticipated. And then on top of that, we're having all of these conversations about the future of work, right? Is it a four-day work week? Is it hybrid? Is it some sort of, you know, something we haven't figured out yet? And then you layer on top of that generative AI like ChatGPT, which is this new technology that's come out that is going to change every single one of our jobs, no matter what you do. So we are, any one of these changes that I just outlined, any one of them would be seismic on its own. And instead we have them all, this confluence, boom, all together. So we really need to understand change and understand in our own lives and in our own careers, how do we navigate this and how do we successfully go through these steps to figure out what is next? Right. And I have a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old and both kids are at a well, one is really at a transition, but what I see with them and their friends is it's not all about the money like it used to be. They want quality of life. Like my daughter has four roommates, four of them make a lot of money. She does not, but she loves her job and they are so jealous of her. They're like, she wakes up every morning and she's happy and she's excited to go to work where they're like begrudgingly, you know, getting on the phone. And so I think a lot there's a lot to be said for your book and the research and that I just don't think they're going to put up with it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And your kids are really representative of that generation. When you look at all of the research that, you know, we are, and particularly younger generations are really looking at meaning in our lives, meaning in our jobs. It's not just a, a money equation at this point, and it's not just a climbing the ladder equation. It's really we're recalibrating how we think about what is success. Right. I love that. Now, one of the things you said earlier that I want, that I have in my notes that I want to go back to is you said you had this aha moment about the book in the middle of the night. And you tell so many stories in the book about people who 
woke up in the middle of the night. And I think, was it Paul McCartney who had actually written an entire song and he didn't use it for years because he was so afraid he was plagiarizing something that he heard. I was like, wow. Yes. I have a whole chapter on aha moments and another one on gut feeling and whether you should listen to your own gut feeling. Short answer is yes. Not always, but very generally, generally, it is actually correct. And your aha moments as well. There's a whole neuroscience behind it. But yeah, the Paul McCartney story, I love so much. So this is early in his career. He's spending time at his girlfriend's house at the time. And he's in this tiny little garret room that has a piano in it. And he wakes up with a tune in his head and starts playing it. And he's like, where did I hear this tune? I don't know where. Somebody, I don't know where. And he's asking other people. He goes around. He says, I, I found this tune. I really love it. Who wrote this tune? And people are like, I don't know. I don't know. And it became like a joke among the Beatles at first. And they put these like silly lyrics to it. Scrambled eggs. Oh, honey, how I love your scrambled eggs. The song was yesterday. And he dreamed it. And he... It it came to him so fully formed that he could not believe that he wrote it. It's an amazing story. But the neuroscience will tell you, and this is true of any of you who have aha moments, and I am sure anybody listening or watching here, you've had that time like you're in the shower, right, or you're exercising, or you're sleeping, and boom, like something hits you out of the blue, and it's a really good idea, and you don't know where it came from. But the neuroscience actually behind this very briefly is that it actually comes from you. It comes from, we have all of these disparate thoughts, experiences, ideas that are floating around in our heads. And um, what happens is generally when you are focused, like during the day and you're focused on your conversation or your work, we have, there's an executive function of your brain. So front of your brain and it corrals all your thoughts and keeps you focused. When you relax that executive function, as in when you're sleeping or showering, all of these thoughts in your brain can come together in a whole different way and they mix and they match and then they can coalesce into a brand new idea, but it's all based on things you already knew. But it coalesces in a completely unique and different way and then it just boom, it emerges to the surface as this aha moment. And But that is also, by the way, one of the reasons why aha moments are also, often feel unique and feel exactly right is because they are coming from your own experience. Right, which I loved reading all about that. And you had also said in the book, so many people are, you know, they're failing, they're trying something, they're failing. If they had just gone a little further in the failure, they would have had success. I had a whole chapter on failure and I found there's a, there's actually a professor at Northwestern University. He's a data scientist who studies failure. And this is what he found. He found there was a way to successfully fail. And that is iteratively. He said, people who are successful failures, most of us, including me, right? Most of us, our inclination is if you're failing at something, you throw up your hands, you're frustrated, you're like, I quit. I'm not doing this. And he found that successful failures will, they'll fail. They'll make a tweak, like a very iterative tweak, and they'll try again and they'll fail again. And then they'll repeat this process and repeat until they succeed. And he said, most of us actually end up failing because we quit too soon. So there's kind of a key where you need to figure out when to quit. And by the way, there's another great way, because then I said, well, how do you figure out how to quit? So I looked into that question. How do you know when you actually should stop when you're really failing? 
And I met a scientist who created, and I love this idea, what's called a CV of failure. I was just going to ask you to tell that story. I love that too. I'm going to do my CV of failure. Yes, mine would just be pages and pages long. So a CV of failure. There is a a scientist named Melanie Stefan who I met. And what she told me the story, she said, let me first tell you about myself. And she tells me she's got this gold-plated resume. with She's like a genius. And she's got these fancy fellowships. And she's a professor at a prestigious university. And, and then she says to me, now let me tell that to you again. You know, I applied for 15 fellowships. I only got one. I got rejected from 14. And then when I did my fellowship, my um, advisor told me, she was in biology, my advisor told me I would never make it as a biologist. And then, and it just went on and on with the, all of the jobs she didn't get and the things she'd been turned down for. And what she said to me was, At some point, she decided that she was going to do a CV of failure and just put in every single job she didn't get, fellowship she didn't get, failure she had in her journey. And um, she put it down on paper, and then she published it. She published it. And when she published it, it went viral in the scientific community because everybody fails. It's just we don't talk about it. And... She found that there are two things that that you get out of doing your own CV of failure. One is it shows you all the things that you have tried, that shows you've really put yourself out there, which is actually kind of helpful to see all of the things you've done. But the second is, and this is really crucial, it's important data that you can use. So in her case, when she looked in black and white at her failures, she realized as a biologist, All of her failures were essentially in the laboratory where you had to do things with your hand, like manipulate silverfish and, you know, like physical things. And what it made her realize is where her strength was. And her strength was what's in called computational biology, as in biology, but you're working with like computer programs and stuff. So what she actually made her switch her specialty, and that is where she finally had her great professional success because she, that was data for her. And I recommend this for anyone. You'll feel better about yourself and it might help you with data to figure out where you're going next. Yeah, that's a great point. That really is because you think your strong suit is over here, but it might be over here and until you put it all down. Okay, one of my favorite stories in your book was the author James Patterson. And I didn't know a lot of what you had talked about. So you want to just share a little bit. I don't want to give everything away, but it's such a good story. One of my favorites as well. So I spent 22 years at the Wall Street Journal. I I started as an intern, ended as the deputy managing editor, the number two job there. And one of my very early jobs was as an advertising columnist. So I'm in my 20s. This is, you know, quite a few decades ago. And I'm covering advertising. And I'm writing about, this was in the 80s, and I'm writing about the Burger Wars, if anybody remembers that, Burger King versus McDonald's. And so I got to go see the guy who runs the Burger King account. So I go to J. Walter Thompson, go see the guy. He's named James Patterson. And he, we're talking, I'm interviewing him about Burger King. And he says, you know, what I really want to be is a novelist. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Sure. Yeah. Right. You and everybody else wants to be a novelist. And he says, oh, I got a book published. And he gives me this book, which I read. 
I do not remember the details, but I recently tracked down the review of that book. The first two words of the review were abysmally dumb. The last two words of that review were deserves drowning. So he was a struggling writer. And, and then, you know, 10 years later, like my TV is on and suddenly there's my ad guy popping up on TV with Along Came a Spider, this mega best-selling book. I'm like, what? So I went back when I was writing next, I went back to James Patterson. We hadn't been in touch for quite a while. He was so gracious and he walked me through his process of how I'm like, how did you get from there, struggling writer, to where you are now, the single most successful commercial author probably in history? And he walked me through and he literally, he went through all of the steps that that I talk about in the book that everybody goes through this reinvention roadmap. He, in fact, he was, he started writing books. His, His search phase, his first phase was he started experimenting and trying to write books when he was a young man at this ad agency. His struggle came really when his books started becoming published and then he found his voice. And then his books started becoming successful, but he was still at the ad agency. And he said, you know, I wasn't sure, like I had it, I, I, I could be successful enough to quit my job. Like I didn't know. He really struggled for a number of years. He did not quit the ad agency until he was almost 50 years old. And then went on, of course, to become the world's greatest success. Right. But it's so good to hear those stories that that somebody as successful as James Patterson had years of the struggle that, and I tell the story a lot on the podcast, but my husband gave me a plaque that says overnight success takes 15 years. And you really do have to build on these failures. And I speak to college kids all the time and I tell them that you can't succeed if you don't fail. You have to know what that feels like. You have to experience it and you have to know that you can survive the failure and then pivot to who knows what, you know, you just don't know what's next. I tell this to students all the time. You're right. You have to, you're, first of all, you will fail. So (laughs) Know that you will fail. Write that down. You will fail. (laughs) (laughs) And know that every successful person you have ever admired has failed multiple times. So, yeah, absolutely. But what's also really interesting is you might look and say, well, James Patterson, he's rich and famous. He's an outlier. But his the process he followed, that roadmap, it didn't matter if you were rich and famous or somebody you've never heard of or what your background was. One of my other favorite stories is favorite people I met was a telephone repairman, this guy, Chris Donovan, telephone repair. He grew up in Boston. He's a Boston guy. Grew up in a working class family where you get a job, you don't have a career. And so he starts working for the phone company when he's a teenager and he stays there. And the thing is, he has this hobby on the side. And his hobby is he doodles, he draws these very elaborate, almost architectural drawings of these very fanciful women's shoes. Now, he doesn't show these drawings to anybody because the first time he did in, in high school, the nuns like got him in trouble and then, you know, and the kids laughed at him. So he's like, well, forget that, you know. So they're in a drawer and then he meets in his 30s, he meets his now husband. Finally shows these drawings to his husband who says to him, you know, you have actual design talent. 
this throws him, Chris, into this massive struggle because he's like, oh, wait, maybe I have talent. But on the other hand, as much as I would love to design shoes, that's not a thing, is it? Right? I need a, a paycheck. I need a job. And he really struggled with this for a number of years. And then finally, his stop came when he hit 50 years old. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And fortunately, he recovered. But that moment, because it pulled him away from his routine, he said, you know, it made him realize life is short. And he said, I was put on this earth to design women's shoes. And when he did recover, and this part gives me goosebumps, his husband came to him. They had been saving and saving to renovate their kitchen. And his husband came and said, here, take the money. Go to design school. And Chris took early retirement from the phone company, took the money, went to design school. Today, he has his own shoe line. It's called Chris Donovan Shoes. You can check them out online. Boston Magazine, a couple of years ago, they named him the best new designer in Boston. They called him fashion's newest superstar. And Chris was 61 years old. And tell the story real quick. Is the part that I loved is when he went to the school, I think it was in Italy, that there was a slight age difference among the students. <laughs> so he goes to the school. He's in his 50s. It's a very, it is the design school for if you want to be a shoe designer in Italy. And he goes, he's in his 50s and everybody else is like 20 years old. And, and he had, he struggled in school first at first. And finally, like this professor says to him, you know, what did you do before? And he's like, well, I was a telephone repairman. And the teacher says, oh, so you're crude. Do crude. Be you. And it really kind of released everything for him to not try to be this cool 20-year-olds, but to try and be himself. And if you look at his shoes today, he will use everything. This is the something I learned from everybody who had a reinvention. They say nothing is wasted. Whatever you did, even when you felt like you were wasting your time, nothing you do is wasted. And if you look at Chris's designs, they're beautiful and feminine, but he has these very clever twists. Like he, in one, one of his lines, he integrated coaxial cable telephone cable into the design. There's another design where it's based on like paper airplanes. I mean, it's, he just, he seeks inspiration. He said, anybody can look at a flower in a garden and say how pretty that is. He goes to junkyards. He finds like interesting shapes and, and it informs his aesthetic. His shoes are beautiful, but they're informed by, you know, whole different set of aesthetics than flowers and, you know, flowers and treats. And part of that could be being 61 years old, that you have the confidence to do that and you can see outside of the box. And like you said, you've he's built on this his whole life to get to this point. Yeah. And we see that a lot with people who are in later stages, not, you know, they're, I, I, like I said, I interviewed people from their 20s to their 90s, yeah. but I was particularly intrigued by women and particularly women, so there's a researcher who studies actually just female career paths. And she found that yeah. female careers tend to go through a set of stages which align exactly with the stages of my reinvention roadmap. But the fourth stage, that what I call solution, she calls reinvention because women tend to end up 
having to reinvent themselves. Actually, women, not just women, but particularly women of color, people of color in general, increasingly now baby boomers, these are all people who end up getting squeezed out of mainstream career ladders. And so they have no choice but to reinvent themselves. But the really fascinating thing to your point that you were just making, when women do reinvent their careers, they tend to look for or create mission-driven organizations. They're looking for meaning, they're looking for purpose, and they're looking for paying it forward and giving back, not just sort of climbing up the ladder. No, and I'm finding that with all of these interviews that I'm doing. And like you, I I didn't know that was a pattern or a thing. And as I interviewed these women, I was like, wow, this is every single woman is has a bigger purpose, a bigger idea. One of my favorite examples of that was a woman I met, um, Jane Biron. So Jane was, she started her career. She had like a great education. She was like Harvard Business School and she had big corporate jobs in very early, but she got married young and had three kids in a row. And she decided like doing the commute from the suburbs and all the travel with her job, it just wasn't working. So she, she actually left the workforce and she said, she knows she was super fortunate that they could afford for her to, you know, her husband could afford to support the family. But at the same time, she really didn't want to quit. She loved her job. It was something that she had planned for her entire life since she was a little girl. And she hated giving up her job. And she said she was out of the workforce for 12 years. And she said that entire time she felt invisible. She said, you go to like a cocktail party or like some new thing. People, what do they ask you, right? The first time somebody meets you, what do you do? And she was like, I'm home with my two kids. And she said, you know, people's eyes glaze over and they look for the next person. And it, it was a horrible feeling. And she, it was frustrating because she loved working. And so she throws herself into volunteering and she does the PTA and the League of Women Voters and she does the zoning board, all of those things. And ultimately, when her oldest kid goes to college, she says, all right, I've got to go back. And of course, she can't go back after 12 years. But what she did instead, which was amazing, was she created a nonprofit that she ran and has now expanded. This nonprofit is so cool. It's called the Acceleration Project. What it does is she gets these volunteers who are very much moms like herself, women who left the workforce to raise their kids but have all of these skills that they're not using. And these volunteers tutor and work with local business owners to help them with marketing and finance and all of these kind of elements that local business owners really are not trained up in that they really need. And so it does two things. It helps the local community, which she got to know because she was at home with her kids. But it also helps these moms. And a lot of these moms, probably most of them, want to ultimately go back into the workforce. So it refreshes their skills, refreshes their resume. Such a brilliant idea. And Jane is still the CEO of this um, organization, but she it raised her profile in her community to such an extent that she was elected mayor of Scarsdale, her hometown. And Jane says, you know, when she talks to young people, and she very often talks to like particularly young women at business schools, she said when she describes her path, she said, it sounds like I planned every step of the way and you can tie it up with a bow. 
But in fact, she said, when you're in the middle of it, you have no idea. It's she was in that struggle. You don't know how it's going to come out. You don't know where it's coming from. You feel very uncertain. And, you know, it's great to know how it did come out. But understand that you're going to be in that struggle at some point in your life. And, you know, you will get through it and you are making progress when you're in it. Right. That's so important. Oh my gosh, Joanne, I could talk to you for hours, but we try to keep them to 30 minutes so people will digest them. Maybe we'll have you back. But before we end every episode, I ask the same two questions of our guests. What is the greatest thing you've accomplished since you've turned 50? Oh, since I've turned 50. Oh, I have written three books since I turned 50. And that was always a goal since I was a kid was to write at least a book. And I, when I was in my 40s and my friends, journalism friends, they all started writing books. And I was like busy and kids and whatever and never was able to do it. And not till after I turned 50 did I write my first book. And now I've written two others since then. Amazing. Look out, James Patterson. <laughs> and then where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oh, hopefully grandparenting. <laughs> I got yeah. in trouble when I said that one of my early episodes, my kids heard it. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I know my kids, uh, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> sorry kids, but it's true. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. And everybody grab the book next. Besides some of the stories we told, you'll learn how Plato was invented, which is such a great story. Post-it notes, which is another billion dollar industry. And I love the Colonel Sanders story too. So everybody should grab the book and read about those. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Great conversation. Thank you for listening or for watching this episode of Living Ageless and Bold. If you haven't already, please make sure you hit subscribe. And if you like the episode, I hope that you will give us a great review. You can also head over to livingagelessandbold.com and sign up for information, inspiration, and exclusive opportunities for us, women over 55. Thanks for listening. And remember, no matter what you do, keep living ageless and bold.